Welcome to Point Two Law Review. I'm John Brandt. And I am Carson Messersmith. And we're here the week of May 9th through May 12th. And, uh, oh man, what a good time. It's Zelda Day. That's true. It is a great time for you. I like it. I don't know. I was uh, at... I did an old man thing where I went to GameStop last night and uh, for a midnight release. GameStop still exists? It does. They're not completely bankrupt yet. There were apparently, which I didn't know about, you get a free thing if you dressed up. Oh, wow. I did not dress up. Oh. But there were people there dressed like elves and goblins and all kinds of things. <laughs> and I was like, I'm in the nerdiest place I think I've ever been in my you life. Sh- oh, you should have dressed up. And then I had a realization. I was like, I'm a nerd. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes I, you just I, have to embrace it. I guess I'm a nerd. I guess I'm here. So I think we're both nerds. We're doing a podcast. Oh, yeah, about legal, <laughs> about legal opinions. I mean, that's... Oh, good point. <laughs> I'm glad we came to that realization today. Let's start with the next parte summary. First of all, oh, let's get to this. So, uh, attorney discipline cases. We're going to completely skip over those. Yeah, so, I, and we may note that there is one uh, right. on the week that there is one. And if you want to read it, that's uh, wonderful. But in respect to the profession, we're just going yeah, to skip over those. Skip over them. And, and for the ex parte summary, the first one from the Nebraska Supreme Court today was a uh, judicial discipline proceeding. You can read that if you want. And then I had, um, and this is no relation, uh, Callahan v. Brandt. He's without the D. Uh, Brandt and Shelter Mutual Insurance. And the hashtag on that is Valued Policy Statute 4-3 Split. 4-3 Split? Oh, like baseball? Kind of. Like a baseball pitch? We'll get to that. Um, Final Supreme Court opinion, Charter West Bank versus Riddle. Cyber squatting. Distinctive marks. Beautiful. Let's get right into it. I have the first one here. I have Callahan v. Brandt and Shelter Mutual Insurance. This is a civil case involving a summary judgment that was granted at the district court. It involves insurance and and coverage, basically, for uh, a residential home that the um, insureds had insured through Mr. Brandt as the agent and Shelter Mutual Insurance. So this is a negligent action brought by the Callahans after the uh, fire. wiped out their house. So they're saying that it was negligent for the insurance and their agent um, to provide less coverage than necessary. And apparently they had, since back in 2011, roughly $250,000 on this policy on their home if it was destroyed in fire. And then they raised it, I think, to 267 or something like that. There's some disagreement uh, factually about who said what to whom uh, at certain points. And... Uh, what they ended up doing was after the fire happened, they sued the uh, agent and shelter insurance for misrepresentation based on those conversations and that advice saying basically Callahan claimed that they went up to their agent and said, hey, do we have enough coverage? And he assured them that they did. That That's a disputed claim, but that's that's one of the factual things. So the language of the policy provided a lot of disclaimers saying, you know, this this is the final thing and uh, you shouldn't uh, rely on any other statements except what's in here and you need to determine your own coverage. And that uh, at summary judgment where the where Brandt, the agent, and mutual ins- shelter mutual insurance moved for summary judgment, it was granted. And it was granted um, on the basis that there wasn't any um, misrepresentation that they could show uh, underlying 
thing and that he didn't owe him a, a duty. On appeal, this is where we get the 4-3 split. Okay, so uh, the majority here finds that the insurance agent has no duty to provide um, that kind of uh, information under the Nebraska Valued Policy Statute. So the vol- a valid, a valued policy statute, which I, you know, I haven't dealt with before, but basically what that says is we can't dispute how much something is worth after it's destroyed. So the value of a thing uh, is whatever the insurance coverage is, and it's basically that's what it has to be. There is, this is a 41-page opinion. There's a historical, basically, dissertation on the statutory construction of the Nebraska Valued Policy Statute. So if that is your wheelhouse, um, this is your wheel, and you need to go take a look at this case. Um, They concluded, ultimately, that the Valued Policy Statute applies here to the tort claim that the plaintiffs were making, and because of that, they can't say that there were any damages because they got exactly what coverage they had. Um, So they affirmed the district court, although they... Uh, came up with kind of a different reasoning. It wasn't that there was no duty. They said there was no damages based on this value policy statute. Now, three justices uh, were involved in a dissent here, and they would not have applied the valued policy statute to the tort action. So that's basically, this case stands for the proposition that the valued policy statute should be applied to tort actions as well as uh, contract actions. So here, the dissent says it should not apply to torts, and they would remand it for trial. And there's quite a bit of language here regarding, uh, you know, mischief in uh, insurance policy coverage and profiteering on undervaluing property, as opposed to, I guess, in the old days, they'd overvalue things to get higher premiums. But now the impetus is to undervalue things and then take the profit on the back end if something is destroyed. So there's a lot of mischief there, and they think that the tort claim here, uh, if it were allowed, uh, absent the valued policy statute, would be able to remedy some of those um, mischiefs. So ultimately, you got a you got a dissent that's incredibly strong, and then you got a majority that's you know four or three. I don't know this this is the law, this is the way it is, but it seems to be that it's pretty narrow. So I don't know. That's it. It's affirmed. Affirmed. Uh, the last uh, court of a or Supreme Court opinion we come to is Charter West Bank versus um, Riddle, and uh, here I guess this is kind of a, a hell hath no wrath like a uh, home potential home buyer scorned. Um, here the Riddles had applied for a loan with Charter West Bank, um, and that was rejected, and so uh, they were not very happy about that, and. Um, filed a suit that uh, was eventually removed to uh, federal court. And in the meantime, uh, which I would like to think this is a little bit of uh, 21st century uh, creative uh, leveraging. In the meantime, Justin Riddle uh, purchased a website with the domain name www.charterwestbank.com and essentially uh, tells Charter West that uh, unless you settle um, this lawsuit with us, uh, for $1 million, uh, we're going to uh, post all the derogatory things that your bank does to this um, domain. And so um, 
Charter West offers to settle. We don't hear what that amount was or anything like that, and the Riddles reject. Uh, Charter West then files a suit in district court under the, and talk about uh, very narrow scope, but uh, if this is something that you think applies to you, this is a very valuable case, under the Anti-Cyber-Squatting Consumer Protection Act, which is a branch of the Lanham Act or the uh, Trademark Act, Federal Trademark Act. And so the district court enters a temporary injunction uh, based on this filing, and then there is a bench trial. Um, I should note also that the riddles uh, go through all of this process, both the bench trial in district court and the appeal pro se. So uh, that's, I guess, kind of an interesting note, and I guess kudos to them for making it through all this process uh, pro se. But the court orders uh, at, after that trial uh, the Riddles to transfer their interest in the domain name uh, Charter West Bank to Charter West within 30 days, finding that uh, Charter West had a uh, distinctive mark and um, control over uh, that uh, domain name. And uh, here, the first issue that the Nebraska Supreme Court deals with uh, is whether or not they have uh, jurisdiction of this. And our Nebraska Supreme Court finds, and I think this piece is important because, as they state, this is an issue of first impression, that state courts um, of juris have jurisdiction over claims arising under the Lanham Act and that um, they have concurrent jurisdiction. Uh, so here, if you have an issue under the Lanham Act or the Trademark Act, our uh, Supreme Court has affirmatively said that state courts uh, have concurrent jurisdiction uh, to hear those actions, not just federal courts. Uh, the standard review also is important here, uh, becomes de novo on the record, um, and so they are reevaluating to see if they reach um, an independent conclusion. And um, the couple of things that I will note, uh, just because I think they are of value, is um, the elements that you have to make in order to, or you have to prove in order to make a claim under the uh, cyber squatting claim under the ACPA is that you have to show one that you owned a mark, that it was distinctive or famous at the time of registration, uh, that the defendant registered or trafficked in or used um, a domain name, and that the defendant's domain name was identical or confusingly similar to uh, the mark of the plaintiff, and that the defendant had a bad faith intent to profit from that. And so here, the big issue is whether uh, or not the uh, Charter West Bank had proven that they had a mark. And the Supreme Court says, no, uh, the domain name here was not a mark. Charter West did not prove uh, that they had a mark for purposes of the ACPA. And, um, you know, Reverting back to my uh, class with Professor Denicola, and I hope he still enjoys this, even though I think he's enjoying retirement now. Uh, you can have a mark if it is uh, generic, descriptive, suggestive, arbitrary, or fanciful. And here uh, they're saying that just the words alone uh, were merely descriptive at best um, and uh, did not qualify uh, for being a mark for purposes of uh, the Lanham Act or the ACPA. And so the uh, Nebraska Supreme Court says that the district court erred in finding that they this domain name had infringed on that mark and that uh, it was covered by the ACPA. And therefore, uh, they reversed, vacated the injunction, and dismissed uh, the action. So the pro se people got a reversal? The pro se people won. Wow. Wow. Good times. On to the Court of Appeals. Yes, on to the Court of Appeals. Um, and the first case that we come to is Capital One Bank versus uh, Scott Tafoya. 
And here I will note this is a fairly long opinion. Uh, most of it is discussing uh, the various laws surrounding this issue. Uh, but the, the crux of this case is that Capital One Bank um, in June of 2010 had um, filed a complaint in county court against Scott A. Tafoya uh, doing business as uh, ARC. Arcosant, I'm going to say, oh, that's probably a mispronunciation, but we'll go with it. Holmes Inc. Um, and there they were seeking a $22,000 uh, judgment um, against him for a balance owed on a credit card. And eventually the county court entered a default uh, judgment and almost uh, a decade later on March 1st of 2021, Capital One uh, filed a reviver motion in county court related uh, to this um, judgment. And at that point in time, what Tafoya argues is that uh, there could not be a reviver because the judgment was against um, the uh, Arisconti Homes, Inc., uh, which was a legal entity, not uh, the individual. Um, and that legal entity had the capacity to be sued and was a separate uh, party from uh, Tafoya here. Um, and that because they were not doing business anymore and that the judgment was against them, uh, they couldn't have the uh, rendered judgment against the individual. And here, uh, again, there's a ton of discussion about uh, piercing the corporate veil when you're required to pierce the corporate veil. Um, if the naming of the individuals here was um, essentially distinct enough to uh, have the judgment be rendered against Tafoya, not uh, just against uh, the uh, business, and therefore... Uh, could you have the reviver against the individual? And eventually the Court of Appeals found uh, that, yes, the judgment was obtained against Tafoya as an individual, not just the doing business as, and that it wasn't distinct enough uh, that it was only a judgment against the corporation, which required uh, a piercing of the corporate veil in order to render a judgment. And they found that, therefore, the action could be revived. The judgment could be rendered against Tafoya, um, and therefore he would have to pay uh, the amount that was owed in that original judgment. All right. I have interest of Jorge A., a child under 18 years of age um, in the state of Nebraska versus Jorge A. So this was a juvenile case um, originally. It was originally filed in juvenile court, and then it was uh, sought to be transferred by the county attorney to um, district court. And the f standard for transfer from juvenile court to district court is a preponderance of the evidence shows favors the transfer. So you got to go through all those umpteen uh, whatever factors in order to decide whether the preponderance shows that the factors favor a transfer. So we have a 17-year-old here who was driving around. There was a traffic stop, and there were items found indicating distribution of drugs, including psilocybin and some fake LSD, I think, was uh, involved in there too. So the hearing was ha held on the transfer from juvenile court up to district court, um, or county court, then district court, and uh, adult court. And a law enforcement officer and protection or probation officer testified at the transfer hearing. And the court went through all the balancing factors and said on the record that, quote, there's a sound basis for the transfer exists, end quote. Um, that is a mirror of the standard. So apparently the po posture is um, when a juvenile is seeking transfer from a county court to a district court um, to juvenile court, the standard is a sound basis for retaining 
uh, jurisdiction in county court or district court. So that's what a county court judge or a district court judge would have to find before it goes to district court. Um, in this instance, the actual standard would have been a preponderance shows. Now, what's the difference between a sound basis for transfer exists and a preponderance shows? I don't know. Maybe there is one. They don't really go into it here. Everybody agrees uh, that the, the wrong thing was said on the record, basically. Um, there's a standard of review in these kind of um, appeals is de novo on the record for abuse of discretion. The um, Court of Appeals here goes through all the factors and finds that transfer uh, to district court from juvenile court to be, uh, you know, um, favors that transfer by a preponderance of the evidence. So basically the court said the wrong thing on the record, um, but followed the law on what the court did. Um, so it was affirmed um, at the Court of Appeals level and Mr. Jorge A. will be transferred up to county court and, and district court for distrib distribution up there. Okay, uh, next opinion we come to is uh, Valdivia de los Rios versus uh, Valdivia. This is a uh, appeal from a divorce in the District Court of Douglas County. Um, and here, the main crux is, uh, as it is a lot of times here, the, the financial piece. There wasn't any issues with the custody piece, uh, but there was some argument about um, allocation of business interests, child support, uh, temporary support arrears, and finally alimony. Um, and the main thing here was actually where uh, this individual's income was coming from. There's a lot of various uh, sources of income. Uh, he did construction and, and mining uh, type work. And so there was some consulting uh, that happened there. And so, uh, you know, a few nuggets uh, regarding that income and, and um, how you allocate that. But in the end, there was not an abuse of discretion um, in the awards from the district court and the court of appeals affirmed. State v. Bogard. Um, trying to decide how much to go into this one, but I'll I'll, I'll just do it. Yeah, um, yeah why not? Um, so Mr. Bogard was found guilty uh, at the uh, trial court level in the county court's judgment. He was found guilty of assault and battery, sexual assault by touch, and indecent exposure. Both of those are violations of the Omaha Municipal Code. Um, the facts of the matter indicate that Mr. Bogart exposed himself and physically touched the breast of a babysitter. He was convicted under those municipal code violations for assault and battery and indecent exposure. There's um, it, it, the, the, the facts are, uh, you know, what they are, and they're indicated on there. He, his claim on appeal was basically that there was insufficient evidence to show that there was a lack of consent. Um, Basically, the babysitter had a piercing on her breast, and she exposed that to him after he asked to see it, and then he immediately touched it. Um, or or I, I don't know whether immediately is the right word, but he touched touched the breast during that time. And the question was whether, whether that was consensual or not. And then he had a piercing, he said, quote, down there, and he exposed himself to the babysitter. So the uh, appellate value here would be um, some information regarding what consent is, and they noted under, you know, some other um, criminal statutes that aren't under the municipal statute in question here that the inquiry, inquiry is not just whether the defendant thought the victim expressed a lack of consent, but whether a reasonable person would have known the victim's words and conduct were, quote, genuine and real 
refusal of consent. So it's not enough to have them say okay. A reasonable person would have uh, said okay. So they went through those items. And then as far as the indecent exposure, they went through some uh, information regarding that. And then ultimately affirmed the uh, trial court. There was also a hearsay objection that was overruled. And uh, the Court of Appeals here says even if it was wrong, it was harmless error and affirmed. Okay. Uh, next case is Ulrich versus Araujo Century Distrib- uh, Distributing. And this is an appeal from a uh, workers' comp decision. Um, and the crux here is that Ulrich was injured in a uh, accident in his uh, van that he was using for work. Um, and then a couple of months later, he was uh, injured again in a non-work-related uh, car accident. And here the Workers' Compensation Court um, awarded um, in Orch's favor but limited the recovery of medical expenses to uh, what occurred um, through the date of the second accident. So uh, the things that occurred during the first accident and then all of the therapy and everything up to the second accident but nothing afterwards. Um, and here there was essentially... Uh, quite a bit of expert testimony in regards to the medical treatment and what occurred based on the first accident and then what occurred based on the second accident and uh, if they were distinct or if they were were related. Um, and here the Workers' Compensation Court uh, clearly found that they were not related and that the second accident was distinct from the first accident and therefore the employer was only uh, liable for that first accident. And uh, the Court of Appeals here found that the workers' compensation did not err um, in relying on the expert opinions that it had in regards to the back injury, shoulder surgeries, and pain management um, and uh, therefore affirmed. Criminal case, State v. Hickman. This was following a jury trial. A defendant was convicted of assault in the first degree. Use of a firearm to commit a felony in possession of a firearm by a prohibited person and was sentenced to 35 to 58 years in prison. Uh, the assignments of error revolve around insufficient evidence, ineffective assistance of counsel, and excessive sentence. Um, of note, I guess in this opinion, they, they made a uh, deal that the jury deliberated for one hour and 14 minutes. Um, that's a detail of the opinion, I suppose, is important, but uh, on... The insufficient evidence, they found that there was sufficient evidence, there was not an effective assistance of counsel, there were some grounds regarding failure to file a motion limine and um, you know object to certain items of hearsay and uh, ask for a continuance. And they applied the Strickland standard and said, you know, you need to show how those things would have proven your actual innocence and you didn't do that, so those were denied. And the sentence was in the statutory range, so it was all affirmed. Okay. Um, last case to come to is State versus Simpson. This is an appeal from a plea-based conviction of third-degree assault of a pregnant victim by mutual consent. Here, the defendant was sentenced to 12 months of probation um, and a uh, non-waverable term of 30 days in jail, and then another 30 day 30 days that were waverable by the by the court. And the two kind of cruxes here, the main thing is the sentencing. Um, and there was a sentencing order that was different from uh, the oral, oral pronouncement at the time of sentencing. And here the Court of Appeals once again reaffirms that a sentence uh, validly imposed takes effect at the time it is pronounced, and any subsequent sentence um, 
fixing a different term is uh, null. And so here, uh, even though the district court had a sentencing order that said 90 days and not the 30 days waiverable and then the 30 days um, at the at the beginning, that was what controlled because that was what was pronounced at the time of sentencing. And then the Court of Appeals affirmed uh, the sentencing on uh, all of the uh, grounds that we go through uh, with appropriate um, sentencing ranges and being within um, the statutory uh, ranges. Okay. Um, so here's what we're going to do. At, at some point when you and I have some time. Yes. <laughs> which, after these past few weeks, I don't know when that's going to be, but uh, we're going to try and do a reflective version of this. Is that right? Yeah. So I think we're going to try to go back through. Uh, we'll each grab a couple of opinions that we just think, okay, these are ones that over the last few months, uh, if you maybe missed them or skimmed them or didn't have time or forgot about them, these are the ones you really want to read. And we just think the value there is, okay, these are the cases that maybe changed some big things in uh, Nebraska law over the last few months. And that just gives us an opportunity to look back at them and then everybody else an opportunity to, oh, if I missed this one the first time or I didn't listen to this episode, I need to catch this opinion. Um, so, And, you know, we might go into some subsequent history. There's a couple cases that we've had that still I think about, and I don't know why I do that, but probably because I'm at GameStop at 11 o'clock at night getting... You're a nerd, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that Chatterjee case. I yeah, wonder what, what happened. Whatever happened What to happened to that one? How'd that end up? So maybe we can get into some subsequent history there. Should be a lot of fun, but for right now, we're going to have a lot of fun because it's almost the weekend. And uh, go back to episode one, look at the disclaimer. This is Point Two Law Review brought to you by Anderson, Klein, Brewster, and Brandt, offices in Kearney, Holdridge, and Minden. I'm John Brandt. And I am Carson Messersmith. Have a great week, everybody.